Welcome to Fifth Kind TV. Our special guest today is nothing short of a living legend. He has been awarded honors in Peru, Brazil, Chile, and was awarded an honorary doctorate for his life's work by the University of Bolivia. He has been continually in print for 56 years since his first publication in Der Nordwesten, a German-speaking newspaper in Canada in 1964. Since then, he has written 41 books, which have been translated into 32 languages and sold more than 72 million copies worldwide. He is the legendary Eric von Daniken. Eric, welcome to Fifth Kind TV. It's a pleasure for me, finally again, that someone in Australia hears me. I'm sitting in oh, Switzerland. It's amazing, isn't it? Thank you so much for joining us. This is an international conversation we're having. Our HQ is in the UK. You are in Switzerland. I'm here in Australia. I'm very grateful that you joined us today. And I want to begin by acknowledging my personal debt to you because my mum and dad introduced me to you and to your work when I was still at school, when I was 11 years old. And that really had a huge impact on the course of my life. In a funny way, it resulted in my going into the world of ministry for more than 30 years and now into the field of researching human origins, human potential, previous civilizations, and ET contact. And I know the journey for you began when you were at school. You were at a Jesuit boarding school, and part of your studies there involved translating the Bible from one language to another. And I believe it was as you did that, as a teenager, that you started noticing some anomalies in the Bible that caught your attention, and that really set you on this road. Tell us what happened when you were at school that got you started on this incredible journey. I was uh, educated as a strict Catholic, and my father sent me into a Swiss Catholic boarding school, which was led by Jesuits. And in that school, we have to make translations of some parts of the Bible from Latin to Greek and from Greek to German. Now, I was a deep, deep believer in God. By the way, I still am a very deep believer in God. We come to this later. But my God had to have some qualities. For example, my God had to be all over. He would never use a vehicle in which to move from point A to point B because God is omnipotent or God is out of time. God is a spiritual being, etc., etc. Now, while translating these books, I read, for example, in the first book of Moses, before the Lord of the Bible descends to the holy mountain, he gives order to Moses to construct a, a, a gate around the mountain so that the Israelites would not come close by, otherwise they would be destroyed. So Moses constructs the gate. The Israelites are in safe distance, and then the Lord descends with smoke and fire and trembling, loud noise. In the Bible, it even says the, the, the mountain looked like a fern ace. Now, I said to myself as a 14-year-old boy, why does God, the real God, the spiritual God, first need a gate for protection? God is omnipotent. Why this distance? Why then would he say they would be destroyed if they would be closed? So I simply had doubts in my own education. And I wanted to find out 
if other communities in antiquity have similar stories as we, we learned in the Bible. That was the beginning for chariots of the gods. And that curiosity took you to reading some other texts. I think already at school you were reading the Mahabharata, and I believe it was one of the brothers, one of the Jesuit priests, who was noticing your questioning and said, Eric, you should go to the library and borrow the Book of Enoch. Exactly. And uh, what you discovered there, um, you know, what was it you found in the Book of Enoch that gripped your attention? You know, the, the college in which I was studying had a direct connection with the library of the university in the city of Fribourg in Switzerland. So I just had to go to the next door and I was in the library and uh, the leader of the library was a Jesuit too. And I told him, your brother told to me, I should ask you for the book of Enoch. And he asked me, what do you want to know about Enoch? I said, everything. I know nothing about Enoch. So I received the book of Enoch. Of course, I studied the Enoch in two languages. And it, it's very, very fascinating. Now we have no time to recover the whole Enoch story. But the main thing is, he, Enoch was taken up to the sky. In religion, they say he was taken up to heaven. There he goes into some, he, he travels or sees some garden. In the religion, they say, well, he's in the garden of the paradise. In my eyes, no, he's not in the garden of the paradise. He's in a mother spaceship and, and in, in a plantation of a mother spaceship. Then he comes to the highest, the room where the highest was sitting. And the highest said, hello, he welcomed Enoch and, and two others. Now I said, my God would never uh, welcome first the human from earth. In religion, they said it was the almighty God. So I said, no, it was not the almighty God. It was the commander of a spaceship. So anyhow, I saw different things in Enoch with my eyes. Of course, we discussed all this with the professor. Of course, they had other explanations, reasonable explanations from the religious point of view, from psychology and so on. But I was still curious and I, I continued with other books, like you've just mentioned, Mahabharata or Kanchur Tanchur from Tibet and so on. And I always came together with similar stories. Some gods, so-called gods, descended. They teach some of the humans, not everyone, just a few of them. And they teach them, and these teachers went back to the humans, and they became the teacher of mankind at that time. So the story repeats. And before these so-called gods disappeared, they always promised to the humans, we will return in a faraway future. And this promise of returning of the future has become part of every culture on, on the planet. Until today, our big religion, I said it, I'm educated as a Catholic, we are waiting for the returning of Jesus. But the Muslim community is waiting for the return of their Mahadi, or the Jewish community is waiting for the return of their Messiah. Every religious community is waiting for the return of someone. Now, obviously, not every religion can be correct or right. Some of them have to be wrong. I suggest in that point, they are all wrong. They wait for the returning of the so-called gods, which in reality were simply extraterrestrials. Now, when we read of these visits, uh, in the Mahabharata, when we read the Vedas, when we read the Dronapava, when technology appears in those texts, it seems quite straightforward. The writers don't seem 
to feel the need to cover up, that we're looking at extraordinary technology. But when it comes to the Bible, the translators seem to cover it up a bit with their translations. We have a spiritualized um, version of the text. And I've heard you say that if we were to translate more literally, perhaps only 10 words used in the ancient text, it would change the whole context and the extraterrestrial aspect of the story would become clear. Um, can you tell us something about some of those words, what they are and how they work? As a Catholic educated, they told me in school when I was a boy, Eric, when you live correctly, when you do not harm anybody, when you do not lie, when you do not kill, once when you die, you will come to heaven. Heaven is the place of absolute happiness. Heaven is the place where you are together with the angel, you praise the Lord and so on. Later, as an adult, I learned that heaven was not a place of peace. In heaven, even in our own religion, one day an archangel with the name of Lucifer came and goes to the throne of the Almighty God and says, we don't serve you anymore. Then the Almighty God asked for the archangel Michael to destroy or through Lucifer out of heaven. So heaven was not a, piece of place, a place of peace. And this happened in different texts. So I suggested, let's translate the word heaven into space. Or, we have been taught angels were there. Angels are the servants of God. Now, angels are mostly spiritual beings. But these angels, or at least some of them, it depends on the translation. Sometimes they call it uh, the, the, the fallen sons of the gods or the, or, the, or the guardians of the sky. Some of these so-called angels had sex with women, definitely, including in the Bible. Now, mm -hmm. spiritual beings, beings who are near to God, would never have sex with humans. And some of these angels also behaved very badly. Sometimes, including in the Bible, in the, in the book of the Kings, uh, one of the angels destroyed more than 100,000 uh, uh, Babylonians or Sumerians or, or Assyrians, what, just yes. from the sky. So I suggested, let's translate the word angels into extraterrestrials. Now I have done it with two words. Heaven becomes sky, uh, angels becomes extraterrestrials. Now, some of our humans, some of our ancestors, for example, Abraham or Enoch, they were taken into the heavens. In reality, the heaven was a spaceship. Heaven, where we have war, is, is space. But into the heavens, where they have been instructed, they received the teachings, that was another spaceship. So just translate a few of these old keywords with modern interpretation and you change the meaning of the text. Absolutely. My way into this topic has been through theology. I, I've uh, taught pastors how to interpret ancient texts and I've studied languages and I find this area really fascinating. There are words that I believe represent technology in the Bible, we've got uh, kavod, which means a, uh, a big heavy thing uh, that moves, but it gets translated as glory. And texts where God is telling Moses, if you're out in the open when the big heavy thing moves, it'll kill you. And it's all been translated in, in a religious way instead of a, a technical way. So I'm, I'm absolutely with you in what you're describing. I wonder how it is, I suppose... In the past, the translators hadn't seen technology to make the comparisons 
and perhaps didn't understand what they were reading in a technological way. Of course not, you know, in the past, these translators, these professors were brilliant humans, very integral, very well educated, but it was another time. The spirit of yeah. time was not the one that we have today. They were not in position to find words like spaceships or atomic weapons or things like this because they didn't know it. So they translated it in the best possible way at their time. Brilliant people, adorable people. But the result, as we see now, because the spirit of time changes, we should make some changements in these uh, uh, old texts. Let me point out one thing which seems important to me. I say in my books that this planet was visited by beings from outer space thousands of years ago. At that time, our forefathers were Stone Age people. They could not understand what they were seeing, what was going on, and they believed erroneously that these extraterrestrials were gods. We all know there are no gods. There's just one god. Now, I am often attacked and accused I'm an atheist, an atheist. I'm a non-believer in God, which is completely wrong. Let's imagine for me, maybe just two minutes that my point of view would be correct. Okay, we would have been visited by being. So where do they come from? What is their evolution? Where did their, their knowledge come from? Now you can go on and speculate. They were visited or infected by another solar system. Where did they come from? You can play back the game for millions of years. It doesn't change nothing. Finally, you arrive to a starting point where in every respect with religion, you honestly say, this is God. This is creation. I never lost my God. I am still one of these figures who pray every day. Yes. Yes, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. The brother who encouraged you to go and borrow the book of Enoch was he encouraging you in your questions or, or were they all a little bit nervous of the questions Eric no, was asking? No, the Jesuits were very, very open. In that school, whatever, every Jesuit had one degree of a, a, a doctor degree. Everyone, be it in literature, be it in history, be it in archaeology. And they were very, very open. They said, you find out. And when you have questions, you come back to us. Of course, I always had questions. And I know the religious answer, for example, Ezekiel, everyone knows Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet in the Bible, and he describes a vehicle which descended. He describes the noise which the vehicle makes. He describes the wheels and the legs and so on. Now, my religious teacher said, Eric, you have to see this as a vision. Ezekiel had a vision. He saw the almighty God sitting on his throne, flying to the sky, impressing human. So I know the, the religious and, and the theological answer, but I don't agree with it. So we had no fights. It was open, by the way, later, yeah, when my good. first book, when Chariots of the Gods came on the market. In the meantime, most of my professors have become retired, but some of them were at my uh, lecture, of course, in the same city where I was educated as a student. And after this speech, we were sitting together drinking a glass of wine. These older teachers, and I was still a young man, I was 33 at that time, and they all gratulated. It's wonderful, the result. You never lost your God. Say, no, that's I will wonderful. never lose my God. Same here. And that's great to hear. So you had this passion on this topic while you were still at school. 
And it obviously continued because in your 30s, you wrote Memories of the Future. By that point, you'd followed your family into the hotel business, and you were the manager of a hotel in Davos in Switzerland, and you'd written this book, Memories of the Future, the, the first title of the Chariots of the Gods. 20 publishers had said, no, that's not for us. I can relate to that. I know what that feels like. And then one day you had a guest come to your hotel who did something for you that turned your life around. Can you tell us that story? Of course. I mean, as you said, I, my, my back grade from the family is hotel business. So I grew up in the hotel business. Of course, I was in a hotel school. Of course, I was for a short time a waiter. Of course, I was for a short time standing on the bar. I was a, 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 on, the on the reception. I did everything which we had to do in the hotel business. And finally, I was the manager of a first-class hotel in Switzerland. But since my college time, all these years, I always had my hobby. My hobby, which later has become my profession, looking for the, the, the translation of old texts and so on. So finally, I had a manuscript, and I was proud as a young man. Of course, every young author is proud, and I was sure the world will snap to this story, but the world was not interested at all. I made over 30 photocopies. At that time, it was complicated to make photocopies. You had to make one page after the other one and send it to 30 different publishers in Germany. They all sent the manuscript back, sometimes after months, no, we are not interested. It's too speculative. It's not enough professional. It's not scientific enough, etc. Then I had one guest which came to my hotel every, every year. He was the, the, the leading chief of a big German weekly with the name Die Zeit, of, in English, the Times, Die Zeit. And I told, he, by the way, we were discussing always of, about my hobby. And he was the one who said one day, Eric, you should write a book. And I said, well, I have a book, but I find no publisher. And he said, come on, maybe I can help you. The next morning, he came to my office in the hotel, and he phoned somebody, which I didn't knew, never heard the name, Erwin Bart von Wehrenalp. And I hear him as he would be today. This German editor said to this uh, strange man on the phone, <coughs> listen, Erwin, I am here in Switzerland, in Davos, in a hotel, and next to me is a young man. He has written a complete crazy book, but the man is not crazy. You should maybe listen to him. And then I received the phone. The other one said, okay, can you come down to Düsseldorf, a city in Germany? And the rest happened. But without that help, probably Chariots of the Gods would never be published. So the connection was made. The book got published. It was an international sensation. It became a move, and it was a game changer. Others had written speculatively on this sort of topic before, but your book really changed history because it set these topics on the table for mainstream conversation, and you broke the taboo in a way that uh, previous books had not done. So the response was enormous, but you got a lot of pushback as well and a lot of criticism. I, I was and where did that come from? Where, how did what? you handle it? Did it come from scientists or religious people or how was that? Uh, mostly religious people. The scientific community at the beginning of the first year, they don't react at all. Mostly religious people crashed me down. Later, the scientific community came and said, well, come on, who is he? 
he is just he was just a waiter, and now he writes a book. And so, uh, uh, what what is his scientific background, etc.? So I was criticized, and sometimes the critics were right, and I was wrong. But when we are young, you don't understand this. You have to become a little older. That the critics are also just humans, and some of them are wonderful people. Others of them were not very wonderful. But I was crashed down practically by everyone. First, the critic said, the scientific critic, he says that extraterrestrials exist. We do not know if this is true or not. We have no scientific proof, at least not in 1968. Then he says, if extraterrestrials would really exist, with what technology would they travel these distances of light years? It was not possible in 1968. In the meantime, we see a possibility that you can travel it. Even if von Däniken would be right, if they would be able to travel, why should they look like us? Extraterrestrials are ne never human-like. In uh, the evolution on other planets, go completely different. So that was all reasonable critics, by the way. And in the meantime, we have answers, reasonable answers for all these points. So the spirit of time slowly changed. In the meantime, many of the critics and I have become good friends. And it's okay. Today we can look at it with different eyes. And uh, more and more, even the scientific community says, Eric von Däniken's theories are still speculative, but at least not impossible. He could be on the right on the right way. Exactly. With all that pushback that you experienced right at the beginning, and all the criticism, and some of it quite personal and nasty, you still wrote forty sequels. So, what motivated you to keep going? Especially the critics. You know, I had to learn that I made some mistakes in some of my books. So you want to be better. You want to say, I do not repeat these mistakes in my next book. So you go on and on. And of course, I gave up the hotel business from Chariots of the Guards, my first book. I had enough money, a lot of money to travel worldwide, wherever I wanted. And I was an extensive traveler. I was sitting in libraries. I was had the help, for example, in, in Calcutta, I was there for many, many days. Professor Dr. Kanjilal, who was the leader of the, the Calcutta Transit College, came to me. And in the beginning, he said, and he was speaking English, of course, Eric, you know nothing. You know nothing. Because I knew a little something about the Indian literature, the Mahabharata, the fifth book. And then he explained me, these Indian literature, these are volumes and volumes much bigger than your Christian volume, Ancient Testament, and so on. So I learned from different teachers, and we have become good friends. So more and more books appeared because I knew more than before. So something in my inside didn't want to say, just to say, this here is my newest title in English. It's out just since a few days, uh, especially in America, but you will find it at Amazon and so on. It's about the war of the gods. That I, that's a great topic because, of course, that appears in ancient sources all around the world. And just the very idea that there's a, a war in the heavens and a war of the gods ought to raise an eyebrow and make us think, the story I thought I knew must be a little bit different. So I'm really intrigued by that title. I'm going to be reading it. 
One of my favorite Eric von Daniken stories, I must tell you, was from the 1970s when NASA invited you to speak at their administrative facility in Huntsville in Alabama. And it, in secret, though, it had to be in secret. They didn't want the world to know NASA was talking to Eric von Daniken, but they invited you to come and speak. And after your lecture, uh, a senior engineer by the name of Josef Blumrich took you to one side to to correct your thinking, so he thought. But something else happened. Yeah, what you know, happened next? I had this speech in, in Huntsville, and uh, I remember it was in a hotel which had, had the name Courage Inn. And after my speech, by the way, everyone at NASA was there, everyone who had to say something. But we agreed in advance that no part, neither NASA nor I, would go to public. We would not tell that I was speaking there. So after my speech, we had a, a, a dinner, and this senior chief engineer, Mr. Joseph Blumrich, came to me and said, Eric, this was quite fascinating, but you mentioned a prophet in the Bible, Ezekiel, and I do not believe that in the Bible you will find anything technology. The Bible, this is spiritual things, stories, maybe fairy tales, uh, uh, dreams, but nothing reality, definitely nothing te technological. And he confessed to me he never read the Bible. And he said, because of you teach the speech now, I will do this and I will con uh, control the prophet Ezekiel, which you find in the Old Testament in every Bible. So he did start. The purpose was to disprove me that I was wrong. And then he became more and more fascinated. And he started to calculate, to sit down. Then two other engineers from NASA came to Joe Blumrich's office and asked him, Joe, what are you doing with the Bible on your desk? And he said, this, this prophet Ezekiel, this is incredible. This man is calculable. We can calculate, we can reconstruct. Uh, and these men did. They reconstruct phrase by phrase, by the way. Not one phrase went under the table. The book of Ezekiel in the Bible. And the result was another book with the English title, The Spaceship of Ezekiel. And in the beginning of the foreword, this senior NASA engineer, uh, Dr. Blumley, confessed he was starting this work to disprove me. But he came to a complete different answer. And it was a joy to work together with me. Okay. It's a phenomenal story. And I think from Josef Blumrich's work, where he worked out how the wheels of Ezekiel functioned, I think they used that design on yes. uh, some of the Mars rovers. Is that today, correct? Yes. yes, and NASA get a patent That's on that. phenomenal. So, so we have a patent uh, for a, a wheel, which is used today on Mars. But finally, the whole idea for this conception comes from the Bible. So if some uh, of the listeners are descendants of Ezekiel, you should maybe ask for money. <laughs> that, I think that's hilarious, a patent for something in the Bible. That's wonderful. Have you found through the years that um, other scientists have come alongside you and said things like, Eric, uh, I can't support you publicly, but between you and me, I know you're onto something. Have a look at this. Have you had many conversations like that? Many, many, especially also from archaeological side, and especially some uh, uh, scientists who were retired. And uh, they came to me first in correspondence, then we invited, then we are sitting together with a glass of wine here, and they confessed me 
I had similar idea, but because of my profession, I could never go to public. Some of them told me, Eric, publish this and this. For example, in one of my books, I was uh, discussing about the Maya calendar. The Maya, the, the culture of Maya in Central America, they had two calendars. These two calendars are very complicated to explain here now. But anyhow, one of the Maya calendar has 365 days, like our calendar. The other Maya calendar has 260 days. So this Maya archaeologist explained me that he had similar thoughts. And he said, Eric, between Mars and Jupiter, there is the asteroid belt. If the asteroid belt would once in the deep past have been a planet, he would have surrounded the sun in 260 days, like in the Maya calendar. I said, Professor, this is great. I will use this information in my next book. And of course, I will confess that I have the information from you. And he said, no, Eric, please, no, do never mention my name. I said, why not? He said, because of my colleague. They, they would harm me, my reputation. Uh, so I, I lose my job. At that time, he was retired already. So we, we would lose. So it has to be the outsiders, guys like Eric von Däniken, who come with this kind of discussion into the scientific community. Then we discuss it. We agree or we disagree. But the idea has to come from the outside. And that's what I'm doing. That's definitely how it works. But do you find it frustrating that you, you've had people saying, I, I can support you, but not in public? I have received so much information from scientists, which definitely prove my case, definitely. With some of them, I have never gone to public, until today not. I can give you an example, because it's 30 years old. In the meantime, I can discuss it. Once I was in Saqqara, Saqqara is in Egypt. With Professor Dr. Holei Khali, he was at that time the head of antiquity uh, of uh, Egypt, Egypt. And he came to me together with an anthropologist. He ex explained me what his job is, bones, etc. And we went to a tomb down deep in Saqqara. And we saw the skeleton of a being where one part was a sheep and the other part was a dog. And he said to me, the anthropologist, Eric, this is not possible in evolution. This is a mixed creature. What is a mixed creature? For example, the Sphinx is a mixed creature. The head of a human, a pharaoh, the body of a lion. Now, here we have a mixture between a dog and the sheep, which is not possible in nature. If a dog and the sheep would have sex together, it would never come out a mixed creature. If a human would be so perverse to have sex with an ape, it would never become a mixed creature, half human, half ape, because the figures of the chromosomes do not fit together. So if we have, if we can prove mixed creatures in the past by the bones, then we definitely have the proof of extraterrestrials, because some 10,000 of years ago, the old Egyptians know nothing about genetical design. In the meantime, we know it. So we would have a proof for extraterrestrial. But that professor says, please, do not go to public with this. And I have not gone to public. Also, now in the meantime, I would go. But the man died. And I, I don't want to do something of, of a personality who is dead because the critic no. cannot control it. So, and, you oh, know, in cool. many cases, in many cases, when some teachers told me, Eric, I tell you something, 
but please do not go to public or do not mention my name. I always respect this because if I would have gone to public, so the critical journalist would go to the professor, he would say, oh, come on, Eric misunderstood me. So I would stand there as a liar and the personal friendship is over, is broken. So I know quite some stories with which I would never want to public. Understood. Why do you think it is so difficult for academic um, and scientific communities to be seen to take seriously the possibility of previous civilizations or the possibility of ET contact where the possibility of it seems so obvious? Why is it still such a taboo subject for our institutions? It has to do with our education. In 1956, I think it was the CIA, the American Secret Service, has given out an order to all its agencies saying every person who makes his, himself strong for UFOs, so flying saucers, societies who are founded with UFOs, who discuss these things in a serious way, have to be made ridiculed, have to be ridiculed. Now, scientists and journalists are normally intelligent and integral personalities. I don't know some liars. No, they are wonderful persons. But nobody wants to be ridiculed. Whatever, they are afraid of being ridiculed. So they don't touch the subject of extraterrestrials. I make myself as a fool. They are afraid of it. So it's only this. It's not even a conspiracy. Simply, our human behave. We are afraid to not be taken seriously, to be ridiculed, and nobody wants it. But the situation changes now slowly and slowly. The spirit of time has changed. I think it's a question of the next 10 years and the scientific community will start to say, come on, maybe we have to open a, a branch at some university, which they will call probably Paleoceti or I don't know what. <laughs> I, I agree. When I was researching for my recent book, Escaping from Eden, I was surprised to find some really strong support in the scientific community in the area of DNA research. And right from the beginning, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, and more recently, Maxim Kukov and Vladimir Sherbak have been enthusiastic promoters of the idea of panspermia, the idea that uh, the genetic coding for intelligent life came to Earth from outer space. Even the European Space Agency has invested serious dollars into investigating that idea by sending a probe up onto comets to test for it. So that theory of panspermia has a lot of high-profile support. People are willing to put their name to that idea. And I've heard you, Eric, uh, use the phrase, we have the answer in our genes. Definitely. What's yes. your understanding of that? How, how you would know, you uh, unpack that? I'm always coming back to the religious texts. And in many of the myths and religious texts, they say the gods created humans according their own image. Hey, and we, nobody takes this for serious. We are a copy of something. The gods created humans according to their own image. We should be the image of a god. What god? Not of a spiritual being. So, so what is it? And this comes back to panspermia. In the universe, it might be that we have 
thousands and thousands and thousands of complete different species. Maybe we have forms of life which we cannot even understand, a form of life with, on which really a communication is impossible. But there are similar forms of life as we too because of panspermia. At one day, one of these civilizations decided to spread out their own form of life in a certain sector of their Milky Way. Now you simply start not with spaceships, this is too complicated, it takes an eternity, the distance is only, you simply infect a section of your Milky Way with your own DNA. And of course you know that the biggest part of this DNA will fall into a, the gravity of a sun, will be destroyed, or into a, the gravity of a planet, which is completely wrong for that form of life, but the few of it will come into the gravity of a, of a, of a planet which is similar than the one they started. By the way, NASA says in the meantime, more than four billions of Earth-light planets must be out there. So, and now on this planet, evolution starts. I am still a believer in evolution. We are the product of evolution, but not only. Somebody always interfered in our genome, as the gods created humans according to their own image. So in my picture, one day a spaceship arrived here. As expected, they found all kinds of forms of life on this planet. And one of them, who was the most advanced, let's call it our ancestor, not in scientific terms, some sort of, of apes. Now they took the most advanced of this one. They simply take one cell. They change the DNA code in the cell. They put the cell into a liquid nutrition, multiply it, and put it into the, uh, the, uh, the womb of a female of the same species. The female will now give birth to the child. The child has, of course, the skeleton, the body, the head, the teeth, the finger. But because of this artificial mutation, the child has something in plus, which the rest of the family tree has not. I mean, we still have today chimpanzees, we have orangutans, we have gorillas. They all believe to the same family tree, but only one, we, spread out. Why? In anthropology, they say, well, it was coincidence. No, it was not coincidence. The so-called gods made it, they created it according to their own image. And it makes all sense. By looking at it this way, you not discredit, you don't say, we are unique. No, there might be thousands of forms of life out there, but some of them are similar to us because they are the offsprings of it. I was amazed to discover um, Plato because I read Eric von Daniken first, and then I read Plato, and I discovered that this Greek philosopher from two and a half thousand years ago agrees with you, and uh, he has his way of talking about panspermia, and then he has this language, these entities who came in our distant past, he called them children of God, and they intervened in our development as a species, and he said they adapted us to give us a greater uh, component for consciousness and intelligence. And I've heard you express that same story in the language of they gave us curiosity, which is what turned us into a technological species. Can you remember what was the evidence that you found that finally persuaded you that yes, that's what happened. Was there something that really clinched that idea for you? Uh, every intelligent form of life, could be an animal, it doesn't matter. If it's intelligent, it has to be curious. 
if you are not curious, you are not intelligent. Curiosity is like a monster which is in our brain. We can do nothing against curiosity. And curiosity will guide every intelligent form of life into space. Why? Imagine, uh, for example, we would have an evolution and we would have become uh, only a form of fish. But as, as a form of fish in the water, we could never develop a computer. Because for a computer, you need, you need electricity. Electricity you cannot find in, uh, de develop in, in the water. Or let's say there would be an intelligent form of lion. Okay, but with the lion uh, uh, fingers, you cannot uh, uh, construct technology, etc. So it's always in evolution, a step by step who goes on, curiosity. Now imagine, just as a, a dream, a crazy speculation, our society would know everything. Just stupid. We knew everything about animals, anything about the plants and the trees. We made a hole throughout the planet. We know what's on the other side between Switzerland that came out in Australia, etc. But one day when we know everything, we still look to the sky. And because of curiosity, we see little lights up there. And curiosity forces us to ask, what is this? We have no alternative. We have to go there to find it out, to study it. Curiosity is the monster in our brain who brings every intelligent form of life sooner or later into space. Oh, man. You talk about uh, the zeitgeist uh, shifting, zeitgeist, yeah. and there's definitely been a shift in the last couple of years, and something that has been in the press, I don't know how many people have noticed, but last year in 2019, the U.S. Navy uh, started opening up about having been engaging with UFO phenomena or UAPs. And then in 2020, we heard from representatives of the Pentagon saying, yes, we have this department and its job is to investigate materials which may be from UFO crash retrievals. And we've heard from Luis Elizondo, Eric D Davis, uh, Chris Mellon, and then Alain Juillet from French Intelligence confirming all that. So we now know that there are government agencies that know more than the rest of us. So have you had any people from that part of the world come to you and say, let me show you something, Eric? Yes, definitely. I had discussions with two astronomers, both are Swiss, very serious people, but they don't want to go to public. And now one of them told me, you see, Eric, now uh, NASA and the uh, American Air Force, they have even filmed some of these objects out there. And now they always come with the so-called next logical explanation. They say, well, it's a, it's a technology made by the American uh, uh, Secret Service or it's a drone, just a drone. But this is not true, the astronomer told me. I said, why not? He said, Eric, we have this so-called UFO stuff, this observation of this object since at least the 60s. So more than 50 years ago, at that time, our technology had no drones with that possibility, you know, to move with that uh, high speed to make this uh, maneuvers, etc. So it is the next natural explanation, explanation which they will tell us it's just a drone is not true either. 
because we have to fight, deal with this uh, mysterious thing since 50 or 60 years. Yes, yes there are some things out there, so, but astronomers would never go to public. You know, every astronomer is part of the International Astronomical Union, and among them you have uh, sections like SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and the, even these SETI people, wonderful persons, by the way, high intelligent person, they have made for, among themselves a, a, a sort of free censorship. If someone of the SETI astronomers sees something in his telescopes or he hears something out there, he is not allowed to go to public. First, you have to contact a special group among SETI. They have to control it because the, Earth, the planet Earth is moving and you have astronomy all over, which makes sense, is reasonable. You have to control it. Do the Australian astronomers find the same thing like the American or the Swiss, etc.? And even if they would come to the conclusion, yes, there is something strange up there which we cannot explain, they are still not allowed to go to public. It's still the next committee to ask, and this committee is now a political committee. Among the political committee, you have, of course, also churches and so on. The question then is, is mankind ready for this? Would it create a shock? Yes. Are we ready now to say we are not alone? Soon as we accept this, we are not alone. It will change a lot in our society, in our thinking. And are we ready for it? And even in my position, I tell a lot of things in my books. Sometimes I said to myself, Eric, you have a certain rest responsibility too. Do not shock. Don't make the people crazy. No. So we're getting, we're getting some drip drips of information, though. We now know that there are materials being examined by these government departments. We have film footage we're allowed to see of these anomalous craft. In ancient history, uh, they didn't have film footage, but they did make carvings and they did make sculptures. And there are so many ancient artifacts that suggest te technology. Uh, that suggests spacesuits, spacecraft, uh, communications devices, so on and so forth. What are some of the most interesting ones that you've seen from all the things you've seen all around the world? Can you tell us a couple of artifacts that you would look at and say that's something you really should look at? Three points. First, we have cave paintings. Now, there are thousands of cave paintings, but the most strongest evidence looking like extraterrestrial you find in the Tassili Mountains. Tassili Mountains belong to the Sahara Desert, today's state of, of Algeria. There you have gigantic beings, really looking like in space suit, gigantic, six meters high, which our cave age people chiseled into it because they want to adore the gods, the so-called gods, which were extraterrestrials. Then we have to understand one thing before I continue. Whenever a so-called technologically primitive tribe comes together with a technological high tribe, the primitive always do not understand the technology of the high society. We have this in, in several cultures, for example, on the island of Tana, more or less in the South Pacific. Uh, the uh, American fighters were there in the Second World War. The natives could not understand this. 
So later, so when, later when the American soldiers were back home, they copied the soldiers. They copied some aircrafts made out of wood and straw and so on. So it's always, they see something, a technological primitive society, they cannot understand it and they make it. Now, you ask for arguments, uh, written, no, not written, optical argument, go to Palenque. Palenque is a city of the Maya in Central America, in Mexico. There is a temple called the Temple of Inscription. In 1952, the Mexican archaeologist, Professor Dr. Rutzluga, discovered under this pyramid a, a, a secret groove, by the way, seven meters under the pyramid, and the groove was covered, the tomb, the tomb was covered with a stone, a large stone, 2.80 meters long, and on the stone, you see something like a frame, and in the center of the frame, there's a human being sitting, bending forward, almost like a motorizing cyclist. When you look at with modern eyes, he has some mask on his nose. He definitely uses his two hands to manipulate control. You see the upper hand, you see the fingers, he's manipulating a knob. From the other hand, you see, still see the four fingers of the back of his hand. He's sitting on a chair, and outside of the frame, you see something like a linking flam. Now, in archaeology, they explain it very reasonable. They say this represents Pakal. Correct. Pakal was the second last rover of the city of Palenque. But why in this position? Somebody in the deep past has seen some of the so-called teacher, the so-called God, in a vehicle, not in a, in a rocket, not in a space vehicle. To understand this, we have sent Saturn V in direction to the moon, but only the top of Saturn V arrived around the moon. From the top of Saturn V, a smaller vehicle went down a lunar module. Out of this lunar module, a smaller vehicle again, the moon car came out. The same thing with extraterrestrials. Mother spaceship, smaller spaceship came down. The extraterrestrials, they behave themselves like today's ethnologists would do. They study a few tribe, they learn a few language, and one of the natives sees his teacher in such a sort of car. Now comes copied. He copied, he chiseled it in stone. By the way, the newest discovery about Nazca and about this thing, the tomb of Palenque, the so-called temple of inscription, is made by two American professors. They both have the same name, Stuart and Stuart, because it's the father and the son. They both are the best, really known uh, uh, translators from Maya into German. And they have translated now the figures around this tombstone. And they came to a, a, a figure, Pakal, this young priest who's sitting there, is given down with a date of 1,200,046 years. All crazy. These gigantic datings. We have another Maya figure, Bolon Yok, they called, where you clearly, the figure 968,000. Or we have the Sumerian king list, which today is in British uh, Museum in London. There we have the kings mm -hmm. before the Great Flood, 432,000 years. So all these dates are crazy, and you find them worldwide. The dates make a certain uh, sense if you bring it in connection with extraterrestrials. Indeed. And with Pakal in Palenque, I understand that the symbology uh, in that carving suggests that he's traveling through the Milky Way. Exactly. You know, in the beginning, uh, they said 
Pakal is sitting in this vehicle. The vehicle is not the vehicle. The vehicle is the open mouth of a mythological monster. And Pakal falls into this mouth. That means symbolize life and death. He goes back to earth. The, 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 the mouse monster. Out of his chest comes the tree of life or the cross of life, etc., etc. This all are archaeological explanations concerning Pakal, the death tomb in Palenque. In the meantime, these two professors, Stuart and Stuart, by the way, <coughs> their, tit their book title is called uh, uh, Palenque, the Eternal City. In the meantime, they come to the conclusion this whole scene, Pakal, everything has to do with the universe. Every detail has nothing to do with monster and tree of life and cross of life. That was yesterday's point of view. In the meantime, we see it with modern eyes. So the situation changed. There was a second one. So cave paintings in, in uh, the Sahara, now Pakal. The third one is Natska. Natska in Peru, I nerve myself practically every six months. On every television, including in my Switzerland, Germany, sometimes you see a so-called scientific documentary about Nazca. They show you these figures. You know, in the desert, you have big figures of monkeys, spiders, humans, uh, uh, labyrinths, etc. And they demonstrate it is very easy to make these figures. And they are right. It is very easy. You simply have to scratch away the hot the stones of the surface, and then a bright shining surface appears, and so you can make figures, monkeys, spiders, so. But what do nerves mean? They do not show in these television documentaries the gigantic mountains cut off. The mountain, the, the top of the mountain is cut yeah. off. Then you see gigantic something look like an airstrip. Beneath it is a zigzag line. Or you have so-called airstrips. I say so-called. They start abruptly. They end abruptly. The longest of it is 3.8 kilometers long. So in these scientific documentaries, they show you the figures. They show how easy it is to make the figures. But this is not the mystery. I never made out the mystery of it. The mystery are the, the, line, the lines that, that cut off mountains, and they don't show it. So this is a sort yes. of uh, not correct working from that part of the community. Uh, I agree. The first time I ever saw the shit off mountains was on Pinterest. I've oh, yeah. never seen it on the t never seen it on the TV before. So all right, so those are three places I've got to go to. I need to go to Nazca. I've got to go to Palenque. I've got to go to Tazili Naja. Tazili is complicated to go there. You need an expedition. That, uh, right. I'll look at some pictures. One of my favorite artifacts that you shone some light on uh, was found in, a group of them were found in Colombia in some underground mausoleums at a place called Tierra Dentro. And I, I believe you wear one of these on your lapel. Yes. Tell us about those because the conventional explanation is ridiculous. Well, I was in, in, in Terra Dentro, and down in Terra Dentro, they found among they found tombs, tombs of rich Indians. Must be rich because they had a lot of gold, gold objects around their head, necklace, etc. And some of these gold objects, they look like little aircrafts. They are today, by the way, in the Gold Museum in Bogota. Tourists can photograph it. Uh, so, but it could not have been an insect, you know, insect for these people thousands of years ago was something uh, uh, which harms you 
which could uh, destroy you, which could harm you somehow. Insect was nothing holy, nothing high. You would never make insects in pure gold. If you make something in pure gold, because you adore it, it has to do something with the gods. Now these objects, they really look like aircrafts, and they are mm -hmm. very, very impressive. And they are different of them. They were found in Tierra Adentro in, in Colombia, including some of the heads with helmets, which the natives had not. The Stone Age people never had helmets on. Also in Central America, not Central America and Colombia is South America. But you found some of these helmets in Tierra Adentro. So the, the world is fascinating. We are learning more and more and slowly the spirit of time. In Germany, we say that zeitgeist will change. I I love those uh, those gold model aircraft because the morphology is very clear. The shape of the wings is clear. You've got the cockpit that you could see. There's a vertical tail. There's no kind of insect yeah. as one of those. And yeah. you really can see very clearly what they are. Uh, so if I where do I go to see those? You just mentioned the name of the museum. Yes, you go to, to Bogota. The Bogota, the center, uh, Bogota, and the, 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 the Gold Museum is, is very known. The Gold Museum is known for tourists. Ask at the hotel lobby, where is the Gold Museum in Glidia? You find these objects there. So if I can afford to go to two museums in the world, I'll go there. Where's another museum that I should go and see? Well, again, uh, uh, Palenque, Central America. I mean... Uh, the Museo of Antropologia in Mexico City has a copy of the tombstone, but the copy is made so, is, is presented in such a bad way that you cannot overlook it. Your eyes are at the same level as the stone. You cannot overlook it. So uh, it's, it's very, very complicated. But That's anyhow, go to Palenque. Yeah. All right. I'll do that. Now, I want to ask you to speculate on something uh, for a moment, or you might have some inside knowledge here. Um, in 2009, uh, the Pontifical Academy of Sciences convened a colloquium uh, under Pope Benedict XVI, and we, we were told what they were going to be discussing, and they prepared us for about a year before it happened, and the colloquium was to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And various spokespeople came and met the press uh, during that process. We heard from Father Jose Gabriel Funes, who's a director of the Vatican Observatory, yeah. and he said we should, be, uh, we should be ready to embrace a brother or sister alien sooner than anyone anticipates, he said. And there's no issue with, with between theology and bioseti, as, as he called it, or uh, astrobiology was his phrase. And then we heard from the Reverend Dr. Guy Consolman, who said we should expect to meet brother and sister aliens. We shouldn't use the word alien, he said, because we'd all be creatures of the same creator. And we shouldn't be surprised to meet them, he said, because they're in the Bible, he said. They're in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And on. when this all happened, and they all came to the press and they spoke about these things. They gave the impression that they were expecting uh, a revelation to be made. So why did they do that? Does the Vatican know something that the rest of us don't know? How do you uh, read that? Uh, uh, one second. Ramon! Okay. Wait a second. I just have to show you something here. One, one second. 
Job. I'm back now. All right. You know, okay. soon as we uh, accept, as, as the church would accept the ex existence of extraterrestrials, including the Catholic Church, would have some problems. We have spoken about this before. We, we will never lose God. Never. The Almighty God is still the greatest thing in the universe. We don't know who created, etc. But as soon as we deal with extraterrestrials, for example, the Christian community has to ask themselves, was Jesus also on their home planet? Did he was crucified there too? Or did they do not yes. need a salvation, etc.? So we have yes. some conflicts. But these conflicts will be solved by the clever theologians of the Catholic Church. Some of them are brilliant uh, yeah. humans, like uh, Padre Fuentes, the, the chief of the, the uh, you just mentioned before. So anyhow, I was always critical against my own religious education, against my Catholic. As I said, I never lost God. Now, a few months ago, I have uh, become uh, 85 years old. And at that day, I received a letter from the Vatican. It was an inscribed letter, the Vatican. And I opened the, Vatican, uh, the letter, and in there was this. Now, this is in German. His Holiness, the Pope, congratulates me for my 85th birthday. Eric Anton von Paul von Deniken is my name. He congratulates me. And there you can see this. It's the seal of the Pope in there. So even the Pope uh, congratulated me for my 81st birthday. All through, I was critical to our own uh, uh, church. That is wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for showing us that. Folks, you saw that here first. Um, just linking in with this question, because I'm really interested in, in Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno, obviously doesn't have any problem combining an acknowledgement of an ET family with his faith. And it connects with some other stories, which I know you've researched. So let's go to Fatima, Portugal, 1917. This extraordinary phenomenon uh, lasted for six months. A message was communicated which was conveyed to the Pope of, of that time, Pope Pius XV, and the instruction was this message can be released in 1960. So the Pope, Pope John XXIII, 1960, opens it up and says, we can't publish this. And it's still suppressed all yeah. this time later. <laughs> what is all that about, Eric? You know, in 1970, three children, uh, uh, they had so-called visions. They saw the Holy Mother Virgin, uh, Mary, in the sky. Now, I have once written a book about uh, apparitions. I know there are many apparitions worldwide, but the ones in Fatima were unique because the so-called Holy Mother told the three children I will appear every following month again at the same time, the same place for six times. So it started in March, then April, May, June, etc. for six months. So more and more people joined the tree, pilgrim people to, to this place where the appearance happened. And on, on October, 13th October 1970, 80,000 people saw a gigantic disc 
coming down from the sky. The disc changed its color in red, violet, blue, orange, etc. And it, and it was not just an appearance because at that time, in, in 1970, we had journalists there who made photographs. Of course, only black and white photographs in 1970. I saw some of these photographs. The newspaper wrote about it. Now, that was definitely, in my eyes, extraterrestrials showed up. Clearly, they showed themselves to the human. But the church said, no, it was a mother, the Holy Mother, uh, Virgin Mother, Holy Marie. Today, in the cathedral of Fatima, when you enter, you see a gigantic picture where you see thousands and thousands of people with open mouths looking to the sky. And up there, you see this apparition like the Holy Virgin Mary appears. But in reality, it was not the Holy Virgin Mary. It was extraterrestrials. So why has the Pope never given the message to the public? You know, all this happened in, ha happened in 1917. The, the children have given the message to the Pope with the order he should open it to the world in 1960. So between 1917 and 1960, are 40 years, uh, three years or what? Only in 1960. Mm. But between 1917 and 1960, Fatima has become to a gigantic pilgrimage pledge for the Catholic Church. I was there three times. It's very, very impressive. Gigantic cathedral, etc. So between 1970 and 1960. Now the Pope in 1960 opens the message and he realized it was not the uh, Holy uh, Virgin Mary. It was extraterrestrial. But in between, between 1970 and 1960, Fatima has become a gigantic pilgrimage place in the honor of the Holy Virgin Mary. Now, of course, the Pope could not say we were wrong. It was extraterrestrial. That's why he said in 1960, I cannot publish the, the, the secret. It would create panic, he said. And the following popes also never published. There is one so-called publication which is uh, on the market. I read it. It's full of lies, of nonsense, which is not true. The real story of Fatima, the message of the extraterrestrials for the pope to be given to you, to mankind, was never published. Until today, not. But this will change also. Yes. So, Here's, here's something more speculative for you. We visited the moon between 1969, 1972. We went six times, public, manned missions, and then 50 years have gone by. We've not gone back, no manned missions since. We're still waiting to go to Mars. What's holding us back? Does the pause have something to do with an ET presence? How do you read it? In my eyes, yes. I don't know if these speculations are true that the, the astronauts found some extraterrestrial objects on the backside of the moon. I know the rumor. I don't know what is true or not. I knew personally Ed Mitchell. Ed Mitchell was the sixth man on the moon, an American astronaut, and he was there. And Ed Mitchell told me, Eric, I was officially, officially informed that extraterrestrials do exist and that we are under control. And I said to Ed Mitchell, and we were together on the four eyes here in Switzerland, I said, what do you mean with officially? You were the mm. sixth man on the moon. Have you seen something up there? 
said, no, Eric, I have never seen a UFO. I said, so what do you mean with officially? He said, Eric, before we started to this trip to the moon, we were three astronauts. Three hours before our starting, the American astronomer Carl Sagan came to us, a very respected astronomer at that time, and he said to us, you are flying now to the moon and back, and it is possible that you see something which you realize immediately this is not our human technology. You are not allowed to speak, you know, in your, in your radio uh, with the Earth, to, to use words like UFO, extraterrestrials, outsiders. You must always use a code word. I said to Ed Mitchell, what was the code word for you on your trip to the moon? He said, Eric, you won't believe it. The code word was grandma. I say, hi, grandma, what has this to do with extraterrestrial? He said, if we would have seen something extraordinary, we would have, uh, it, we had to say on, on, on the micro, I just remember my grandma. So it's all crazy. So there are these things. On the moon, on our moon, we definitely have lines, at least two lines, straight away, some kilometers. We have no explanation what it is. And then we have the mm. Mars. Now, in the meantime, the surface of the Mars has been photographed, and including the surface of Ceres. Ceres is one of the, the biggest asteroid between Mars and Jupiter. On the surface on Mars and on the surface of Ceres, definitely you see artificial structures, rectangles. On the two moons, Phobos and Deimos of Mars, you find something like an obelisk. This is known, but there is no comment in the public. Some 25 years ago, when I was in Moscow at the Sternberg Institute, Professor Dr. Joseph Slavsky, the best astrophysician at that time, he told me, Eric, the two Mars moons, Phobos and Deimos, must be hollow. They must be artificial. I said, why? He said, you know, they surround the Mars exactly on the equator, two of them, and they surround the Mars faster than Mars itself turns beneath them. And the calculation, there are certain laws of calculation. They must be hollow. So nobody has ever come to public with this information. Something is wrong there. And again, the spirit mm. of time will bring it to the public sooner or later. That's why it's the church and others prepare us slowly, slowly. Yes. I remember uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, ah, drawing Aldrin, attention yeah. to... Uh, yeah, to the Phobos, uh, one of the moons of Mars, and, and pointing out there's an obelisk there, yes. and when the public see that, they'll want to know who put that there. Uh, and I think Neil Armstrong, when he saw the photographs of it, yeah. said that's artificial, that should be studied. And so some attention was drawn to those things, and then we didn't seem to hear any more. Yes, but again... The spirit of time changes slowly, slowly, and more and more of this information will come to the public, and more and more of the astronomers, the old ones die out, the young generation comes, more and more they learn something is wrong out there. By the way, we have to stop in the next few minutes, I cannot speak anymore. We are more than one All hour right. together now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. Let me fast forward then to, uh, oh, look, this is a really interesting question. I have to ask you this. Uh, it's to do with how your thinking has changed over the last half century. And I know in one area, early on, you were quite skeptical about contemporary reports of contact and abduction and such. 
And then you had a conversation with Harvard's uh, then director of clinical psychology, John Mack, and he changed your mind. And I was wondering what you heard from him that changed your thinking. You know, I hear this rumor some, some 30, 40 years ago that some humans say they were abducted by extraterrestrials. And I always had the feeling, come on, this is no really nonsense. This is garbage. They just invent something to make themselves important and so on. So I was completely skeptic against them. Then one day I received the book from a friend of America just with the title Abductions. And the author was Professor Dr. John Mack. And I read on the back, he's a Harvard professor, two doctor titles, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize, etc. Then we had an international congress of our organization. We have an organization called the Ancient Astronaut Society, and we have every five years a congress. We had this congress in Switzerland, and I was able to invite Professor Dr. John Mack to this congress. He accepted. He came to the congress. So we met personally. Later, I met him three more times. We were together in Turkey, and we were speaking in four, uh, between four eyes in a restaurant. And I said, John, you, a Harvard professor, respected personality. How come that you write a book about abductions? Don't you call a ridicule you? He said, yes, some of them do. And they attack me, attack me. I said, why, why do you come? He said, Eric, in the beginning, I was like you. I did not believe a word about all this rubbish. People, uh, uh, you know, taken away by extraterrestrials. Then we simply wanted to find out a possible answer at the university from the sociological and psychological point of view, not from astronomy. And we simply made an, an advice, and some people, we asked, if somebody has the uh, impression he has been abducted or is in contact with extraterrestrials, he should contact us. So a few people came there. Among them, six were absolutely, they stand to all the questions, cross-examination and, uh, and everything. And these six were taken, that's old John Mack who told me, that, these six were taken uh, in a hospital into the tomography. You mean the, the body was uh, uh, tom- tomography. And every yes. of these six, had an implant, an implantation in, in his body. I said, John, an implantation? What is this? Later, I saw one of these implantations. It, it was cut out of the body in, in, in Santa Barbara in California. I met the professors who made the, 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 the surgery, and I saw some of these things, little 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 things uh, uh, looking like a, a needle. So and I asked Professor John Mack, what is this? He said, of course we studied it. From the uh, from the psycholo- uh, from the uh, uh, physical way, from the chemical way, uh, 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 it's uh, all possibility, and we know that it's composition. We know what is uh, what is inside, but we don't know how it works. And he said to me, Eric, just imagine we have some ice bears or certain fishes. We make a certain implant. We want to uh, a chip. We want to observe them. How do they travel? How long do they sleep, etc.? Now maybe uh, the female ice bear sees the chip on the ear of the male ice bear, and it's, it goes with his nose in it. It looks at it with his eyes, but it doesn't know what it's for. He said we are in the same situation. We have six implants definitely found. We know its composition, but we don't know how it works. And he said to me, 
that was the reason why I started to write my book, Abductions. I simply had the feeling this has to go public. Yes. The situation has to change. Yes, indeed. Eric, I want to spare your voice, so I'm going to bring it back to this final question. You mentioned it earlier, and I know you wanted to come back to it. And it's, it's the question of another change in your thinking. Right at the beginning, you were a devout Catholic and you were taught to pray to Jesus and to Mary. Now, I know that your belief about the historic Jesus is that he uh, survived his crucifixion. He moved to Srinagar, a place that I've been to in Kashmir. And so I presume you don't pray to Jesus and to Mary these days, but I know you do still pray. So can you say who or what do you pray to now and what is your prayer? In, in religion, they tell us in the beginning was God and God was the word. So as a critic, you should ask, okay, where did God come from? In uh, uh, physics, they tell us in the beginning there was a big bang, the, the origin atom. So you have to ask, where does the Big Bang come from, the first atom? In both situations, in religion, in the beginning was God, or in physics, we have an answer, but no proof. But we know something for definitely sure. The universe exists, and we do exist, and we can observe, and we can measure these billions and trillions of stars out there. Slowly, slowly, we see there are billions of planets out there. So we know for sure the universe exists, and there you have to become very, very humble and very respectful with every church. And in my church, it's still the Catholic church, I say, this is creation. This is God. We are nothing, we humans, just little teeny things. You ask me to whom I pray. I pray to this, what I call the gigantic uh, uh, waves, the gigantic uh, uh, is not brain, the gigantic spirit of the universe. I call it the spirit of the universe. I pray to it. And first I always say, thank you for this incredible creation, which I will never understand. But I'm a teeny little part of your creation. So to say, your son, like a bacteria in my body, I belong to your body of this gigantic creation. And I'm very, very grateful and thank you for the creation and thank you that I exist, that I can live and breathe and think and speak. That's my way of prayer. All right, we're going to put up some links so that people can follow you, follow your thinking, follow your books. The War of the Gods is nearly out. Yeah. Eyewitnesses of the Gods, your previous book, still available. People should go this and buy the, that. You're doing that's the latest. That's the, the latest of Gods. One, you've you've got tours coming up in 2021, guided tours that you're doing, one in Turkey and the other, I can't remember where the other one is that you're doing. Um, but where do people go? Where's your website that people should go to? So the website of Eric is Donican.com. And there at the entrance page, you find the English section. So Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for that. We will put that link up. Let me just uh, finish with these remarks. Two and a half thousand years ago, Plato wrote that in the beginning was a unified field of intelligence and consciousness. It exploded to form the material universe so that now life can experience itself. 
And we're all part of that great journey of experiencing and learning. And Eric von Daniken, you've been a really important part of our journey in the 20th and 21st century, our journey of experiencing and learning. You really have changed the zeitgeist. And I want to thank you so much for doing that pioneering work. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for blazing that trail. And a big thank you from us at Fifth Kind TV for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome everyone down under, some far away. I'm in Switzerland. You're in Australia. Between us is half of the world. Enjoy your life and thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you, Eric, so much. Check out our main YouTube channel, The Fifth Kind, at youtube.com forward slash fifth kind. Check out our official website at fifthkind.tv.